Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White The Monk, A Romance by Matthew Gregory Lewis Chapter 4, Part 1 Avaunt and quit my sight. Let the earth hide thee. Thy bones are marrowless, thy blood is cold. Thou hast no speculation in those eyes which thou dost glare with. Hence, horrible shadow. Unreal mockery, hence. Macbeth. Continuation of the History of Don Ramon My journey was uncommonly agreeable. I found the baron, a man of some sense, but little knowledge of the world. He had passed a great part of his life without stirring beyond the precincts of his own domains, and consequently his manners were far from being the most polished, but he was hearty, good-humoured, and friendly. His attention to me was all that I could wish, and I had every reason to be satisfied with his behaviour. His ruling passion was hunting, which he had brought himself to consider as a serious occupation. And when talking over some remarkable chase, he treated the subject with as much gravity as if it had been a battle on which the fate of two kingdoms was depending. I happened to be a tolerable sportsman. Soon after my arrival at Lindenburg I gave some proofs of my dexterity. The baron immediately marked me down for a man of genius, and vowed to me an eternal friendship. That friendship was become to me by no means indifferent. At the castle of Lindenburg I beheld for the first time your sister, the lovely Agnes. For me, whose heart was unoccupied and who grieved at the void, to see her and to love her were the same. I found in Agnes all that was requisite to secure my affection. She was then scarcely sixteen. Her person, light and elegant, was already formed. She possessed several talents in perfection, particularly those of music and drawing. Her character was gay, open, and good-humoured, and the graceful simplicity of her dress and manners formed an advantageous contrast to the art and studied coquetry of the Parisian dames whom I had just quitted. From the moment that I beheld her, I felt the most lively interest in her fate. I made many inquiries respecting her of the baroness. "'She is my niece,' replied that lady. "'You are still ignorant, Don Alfonso, that I am your countrywoman. I am sister to the Duke of Medina Celi. Agnes is the daughter of my second brother, Don Gaston.' She has been destined to the convent from her cradle, 
and will soon make her profession at Madrid. Here Lorenzo interrupted the Marquise by an exclamation of surprise. Intended for the convent from her cradle, said he, by heaven, this is the first word that I ever heard of such a design. I believe it, my dear Lorenzo, answered Don Ramon, but you must listen to me with patience. You will not be less surprised when I relate some particulars of your family, still unknown to you, which I have learned from the mouth of Agnes herself. He then resumed his narrative as follows. You cannot but be aware that your parents were unfortunately slaves to the grossest superstition. When this foible was called into play, their every other sentiment, their every other passion, yielded to its irresistible strength. While she was big with Agnes, your mother was seized by a dangerous illness and given over by her physicians. In this situation, Doña Inesilla vowed that if she recovered from her malady, the child then living in her bosom, if a girl, should be dedicated to St. Clair, if a boy, to St. Benedict. Her prayers were heard. She got rid of her complaint. Agnes entered the world alive, and was immediately destined to the service of St. Clair. Don Gaston readily chimed in with his lady's wishes, but knowing the sentiments of the duke, his brother, respecting a monastic life, it was determined that your sister's destination should be carefully concealed from him. The better to guard the secret, it was resolved that Agnes should accompany her aunt, Doña Rodolfa, into Germany whither that lady was on the point of following her new-married husband, Baron Lindenberg. On her arrival at that estate, the young Agnes was put into a convent, situated but a few miles from the castle. The nuns, to whom her education was confided, performed their charge with exactitude. They made her a perfect mistress of many accomplishments, and strove to infuse into her mind a taste for the retirement and tranquil pleasures of a convent. But a secret instinct made the young recluse sensible that she was not born for solitude. In all the freedom of youth and gaiety, she scrupled not to treat as ridiculous many ceremonies which the nuns regarded with awe. And she was never more happy than when her lively imagination inspired her with some scheme to plague the stiff lady abbess or the ugly, ill-tempered old porteress. She looked with disgust upon the prospect before her. However, no alternative was offered to her, and she submitted to the decree of her parents, though not without secret repining. That repugnance she had not art enough to conceal long. Don Gaston was informed of it. Alarmed, Lorenzo, lest your affection for her should oppose itself to his projects, and lest you should positively object to your sister's misery, he resolved to keep the whole affair from your knowledge, as well as the duke's, till the sacrifice should be consummated. The season of her taking the veil was fixed for the time when you should be upon your travels. In the meanwhile, no hint was dropped of Doña Inesilla's fatal vow. Your sister was never permitted to know your direction. All your letters were read before she received them, and those parts effaced which were likely to nourish her inclination for the world. Her answers were dictated either by her aunt or by Dame Cunegonda, her governess. These particulars I learned partly from Agnes, partly from the baroness herself. 
I immediately determined upon rescuing this lovely girl from a fate so contrary to her inclinations and ill-suited to her merit. I endeavored to ingratiate myself into her favor. I boasted of my friendship and intimacy with you. She listened to me with avidity. She seemed to devour my words while I spoke in your praise, and her eyes thanked me for my affection to her brother. My constant and unremitted attention at length gained me her heart, and with difficulty I obliged her to confess that she loved me. When, however, I proposed her quitting the castle of Lindenburg, she rejected the idea in positive terms. "'Be generous, Alfonso,' she said. "'You possess my heart, but use not the gift ignobly. Employ not your ascendancy over me in persuading me to take a step at which I should hereafter have to blush.' I am young and deserted. My brother, my only friend, is separated from me, and my other relations act with me as my enemies. Take pity on my unprotected situation. Instead of seducing me to an action which would cover me with shame, strive rather to gain the affections of those who govern me. The baron esteems you. My aunt, to others ever harsh, proud, and contemptuous, remembers that you rescued her from the hands of murderers, and wears with you alone the appearance of kindness and benignity. Try then your influence over my guardians. If they consent to our union, my hand is yours. From your account of my brother I cannot doubt your obtaining his approbation, and when they find the impossibility of executing their design, I trust that my parents will excuse my disobedience and expiate by some other sacrifice my mother's fatal vow. From the first moment that I beheld Agnes, I had endeavored to conciliate the favor of her relations. Authorized by the confession of her regard, I redoubled my exertions. My principal battery was directed against the baroness. It was easy to discover that her word was law in the castle. Her husband paid her the most absolute submission, and considered her as a superior being. She was about forty. In her youth she had been a beauty, but her charms had been upon that large scale which can but ill sustain the shock of years. However, she still possessed some remains of them. Her understanding was strong and excellent when not obscured by prejudice, which, unluckily, was but seldom the case. Her passions were violent. She spared no pains to gratify them, and pursued with unremitting vengeance those who opposed themselves to her wishes. The warmest of friends, the most inveterate of enemies, such was the Baroness Lindenberg. I labored incessantly to please her, and luckily I succeeded but too well. She seemed gratified by my attention, and treated me with a distinction accorded by her to no one else. One of my daily occupations was reading to her for several hours. Those hours I should much rather have passed with Agnes, but as I was conscious that complaisance for her aunt would advance our union, I submitted with a good grace to the penance imposed upon me. Doña Rodolfa's library was principally composed of old Spanish romances. These were her favorite studies, and once a day one of these unmerciful volumes was put regularly into my hands. I read the wearisome adventures of Pierce Forrest, Tirante the White, Palmerine of England, and the Knight of the Sun, till the book was on the point of falling from my hands through ennui. However, 
the increasing pleasure which the baroness seemed to take in my society encouraged me to persevere and latterly she showed me for a partiality so marked that agnes advised me to seize the first opportunity of declaring our mutual passion to our aunt one evening i was alone with doña rodolfa in her own apartment as our readings generally treated of love agnes was never permitted to assist at them i was just congratulating myself on having finished the loves of tristan and the queen isult ah the unfortunates cried the baroness how say you senor do you think it possible for man to feel an attachment so disinterested and sincere i cannot doubt it replied i my own heart furnishes me with the certainty ah doña rodolfa might i but hope for your approbation of my love might i but confess the name of my mistress without incurring your resentment she interrupted me suppose i were to spare you that confession suppose i were to acknowledge that the object of your desires is not unknown to me suppose i were to say that she returns your affection and laments not less sincerely than yourself the unhappy vows which separate her from you ah doña rodolfa i exclaimed throwing myself upon my knees before her and pressing her hand to my lips you have discovered my secret what is your decision must i despair or may i reckon upon your favor she withdrew not the hand which i held but she turned from me and covered her face with the other how can i refuse it you she replied ah don alfonso i have long perceived to whom your attentions were directed but till now i perceived not the impression which they had made upon my heart at length i can no longer hide my weakness either from myself or from you i yield to the violence of my passion and own that i adore you for three long months i stifled my desires but growing stronger by resistance i submit to their impetuosity pride fear and honour respect for myself and my engagements to the baron all are vanquished i sacrifice them to my love for you and it still seems to me that i pay too mean a price for your possession she paused for an answer judge lorenzo what must have been my confusion at this discovery I at once saw all the magnitude of this obstacle which I had myself raised to my happiness. The baroness had placed those attentions to her own account, which I had merely paid her for the sake of Agnes, and the strength of her expressions, the looks which accompanied them, and my knowledge of her revengeful disposition, made me tremble for myself and my beloved. I was silent for some minutes. I knew not how to reply to her declaration. I could only resolve to clear up the mistake without delay, and for the present to conceal from her knowledge the name of my mistress. No sooner had she avowed her passion than the transports which before were evident in my features gave place to consternation and constraint. I dropped her hand and rose from my knees. The change in my countenance did not escape her observation. "'What means this silence?' said she in a trembling voice. Where is that joy which you led me to expect? Forgive me, senora, I answered, if what necessity forces from me should seem harsh and ungrateful. To encourage you in an error, which, however, it may flatter myself, must prove to you the source of disappointment, would make me appear criminal in every eye. 
honor obliges me to inform you that you have mistaken for the solicitude of love what was only the attention of friendship the latter sentiment is that which i wish to excite in your bosom to entertain a warmer respect for you forbids me and gratitude for the baron's generous treatment perhaps these reasons would not be sufficient to shield me from your attractions were it not that my affections are already bestowed upon another you have charms senora which might captivate the most insensible no heart unoccupied could resist them happy is it for me that mine is no longer in my possession or i should have to reproach myself forever with having violated the laws of hospitality recollect yourself noble lady recollect what is owed by you to honour by me to the baron and replace by esteem and friendship those sentiments which i never can return the baroness turned pale at this unexpected and positive declaration she doubted whether she slept or woke at length recovering from her surprise consternation gave place to rage and the blood rushed back into her cheeks with violence villain she cried monster of deceit thus is the avowal of my love received it is thus that but no no it cannot it shall not be alfonso behold me at your feet be witness of my despair look with pity on a woman who loves you with sincere affection she who possesses your heart how has she merited such a treasure what sacrifice has she made to you what raises her above rodolpha i endeavoured to lift her from her knees for god's sake senora restrain these transports they disgrace yourself and me your exclamations may be heard and your secret divulged to your attendants i see that my presence only irritates you permit me to retire i prepared to quit the apartment the baroness caught me suddenly by the arm and who is this happy rival said she in a menacing tone i will know her name and when i know it she is someone in my power you entreated my favour my protection let me but find her let me but know who dares to rob me of your heart and she shall suffer every torment which jealousy and disappointment can inflict who is she answer me this moment hope not to conceal her from my vengeance spies shall be set over you every step every look shall be watched your eyes will discover my rival i shall know her and when she is found tremble alfonso for her and for yourself as she uttered these last words her fury mounted to such a pitch as to stop her powers of respiration she panted groaned and at length fainted away as she was falling i caught her in my arms and placed her upon a sofa then hastening to the door i summoned her women to her assistance i committed her to their care and seized the opportunity of escaping agitated and confused beyond expression i bent my steps towards the garden the benignity with which the baroness had listened to me at first raised my hopes to the highest pitch i imagined her to have perceived my attachment for her niece and to approve of it extreme was my disappointment at understanding the true purport of her discourse i knew not what course to take the superstition of the parents of agnes aided by her aunt's unfortunate passion seemed to oppose such obstacles to our union as were almost insurmountable 
As I passed by a low parlor, whose windows looked into the garden, through the door which stood half open I observed Agnes seated at a table. She was occupied in drawing, and several unfinished sketches were scattered round her. I entered, still undetermined whether I should acquaint her with the declaration of the baroness. "'Oh, is it only you?' said she, raising her head. "'You are no stranger, and I shall continue my occupation without ceremony. Take a chair and seat yourself by me.' I obeyed and placed myself near the table. Unconscious what I was doing and totally occupied by the scene which had just passed, I took up some of the drawings and cast my eyes over them. One of the subjects struck me from its singularity. It represented the great hall of the castle of Lindenburg. A door conducting to a narrow staircase stood half open. In the foreground appeared a group of figures placed in the most grotesque attitudes. Terror was expressed upon every countenance. Here was one upon his knees, with his eyes cast up to heaven, and praying most devoutly. There another was creeping away upon all fours. Some hid their faces in their cloaks or the laps of their companions. Some had concealed themselves beneath a table on which the remnants of a feast were visible, while others, with gaping mouths and eyes wide-stretched, pointed to a figure supposed to have created this disturbance. It represented a female of more than human stature, clothed in the habit of some religious order. Her face was veiled. On her arm hung a chaplet of beads. Her dress was in several places stained with the blood which trickled from a wound upon her bosom. In one hand she held a lamp, in the other a large knife, and she seemed advancing towards the iron gates of the hall. "'What does this mean, Agnes?' said I. "'Is this some invention of your own?' She cast her eyes upon the drawing. "'Oh, no,' she replied. "'Tis the invention of much wiser heads than mine.' "'But can you possibly have lived at Lindenburg for three whole months without hearing of the bleeding nun? "'You are the first who ever mentioned the name to me. "'Pray, who may the lady be?' "'That is more than I can pretend to tell you. "'All my knowledge of her history comes from an old tradition in this family, "'which has been handed down from father to son, "'and is firmly credited throughout the baron's domains. "'Nay, the baron believes it himself.' and as for my aunt, who has a natural turn for the marvellous, she would sooner doubt the veracity of the Bible than of the bleeding nun. Shall I tell you this history? I answered that she would oblige me much by relating it. She resumed her drawing, and then proceeded as follows, in a tone of burlesqued gravity. It is surprising that in all the chronicles of past times this remarkable personage is never once mentioned. Fain would I recount to you her life, but unluckily, till after her death, she was never known to have existed. Then first did she think it necessary to make some noise in the world, and with that intention she made bold to seize upon the castle of Lindenburg. Having a good taste, she took up her abode in the best room of the house, and, once established there, she began to amuse herself by knocking about the tables and chairs in the middle of the night. Perhaps she was a bad sleeper, but this I have never been able to ascertain. According to the tradition, this entertainment commenced about a century ago. It was accompanied with shrieking, howling, groaning, swearing, and many other agreeable noises of the same kind. 
but though one particular room was more especially honored with her visits she did not entirely confine herself to it she occasionally ventured into the old galleries paced up and down the spacious halls or sometimes stopping at the doors of the chambers she wept and wailed there to the universal terror of the inhabitants in these nocturnal excursions she was seen by different people who all describe her appearance as you behold it here traced by the hand of her unworthy historian the singularity of this account insensibly engaged my attention did she ever speak to those who met her said i not she the specimens indeed which she gave nightly of her talents for conversation were by no means inviting sometimes the castle rung with oaths and execrations a moment after she repeated her paternoster now she howled out the most horrible blasphemies and then chanted de profundis as orderly as if still in the choir in short she seemed a mighty capricious being but whether she prayed or cursed whether she was impious or devout she always contrived to terrify her auditors out of their senses the castle became scarcely habitable and its lord was so frightened by these midnight revels that one fine morning he was found dead in his bed this success seemed to please the nun mightily for now she made more noise than ever but the next baron proved too cunning for her he made his appearance with a celebrated exerciser in his hand who feared not to shut himself up for a night in the haunted chamber there it seems that he had a hard battle with the ghost before she would promise to be quiet she was obstinate but he was more so and at length she consented to let the inhabitants of the castle take a good night's rest for some time after no news was heard of her but at the end of five years the exerciser died and then the nun ventured to peep abroad again however she was now grown much more tractable and well behaved she walked about in silence and never made her appearance above once in five years this custom if you will believe the baron she still continues he is fully persuaded that on the fifth of may of every fifth year as soon as the clock strikes one the door of the haunted chamber opens observe that this room has been shut up for near a century then out walks the ghostly nun with her lamp and dagger she descends the staircase of the eastern tower and crosses the great hall on that night the porter always leaves the gates of the castle open out of respect to the apparition not that this is thought by any means necessary since she could easily whip through the keyhole if she chose it but merely out of politeness and to prevent her from making her exit in a way so derogatory to the dignity of her ghost-ship and whither does she go on quitting the castle to heaven i hope but if she does the place certainly is not to her taste for she always returns after an hour's absence the lady then retires to her chamber and is quiet for another five years and you believe this agnes how can you ask such a question no no alfonso i have too much reason to lament superstition's influence to be its victim myself however i must not avow my incredulity to the baroness she entertains not a doubt of the truth of this history as to dame cunegonda my governess she protests that fifteen years ago she saw the spectre with her own eyes she related to me one evening how she and several other domestics 
had been terrified while at supper by the appearance of the bleeding nun, as the ghost is called in the castle. Tis from her account that I drew this sketch, and you may be certain that Cunegonda was not omitted. There she is. I shall never forget what a passion she was in, and how ugly she looked while she scolded me for having made her pictures so like herself. Here she pointed to a burlesque figure of an old woman in an attitude of terror. In spite of the melancholy which oppressed me, I could not help smiling at the playful imagination of Agnes. She had perfectly preserved Dame Cunegonda's resemblance, but had so much exaggerated every fault and rendered every feature so irresistibly laughable that I could easily conceive the duenna's anger. The figure is admirable, my dear Agnes. I knew not that you possessed such talents for the ridiculous. Stay a moment, she replied. I will show you a figure still more ridiculous than Dame Cunegonda's. If it pleases you, you may dispose of it as seems best to yourself. She rose and went to a cabinet at some little distance. Unlocking a drawer, she took out a small case which she opened and presented to me. Do you know the resemblance? said she, smiling. It was her own. Transported at the gift, I pressed the portrait to my lips with passion. I threw myself at her feet and declared my gratitude in the warmest and most affectionate terms. She listened to me with complacence and assured me that she shared my sentiments, when suddenly she uttered a loud shriek, disengaged the hand which I held, and flew from the room by a door which opened to the garden. Amazed at this abrupt departure, I rose hastily from my knees. I beheld with confusion the baroness standing near me, glowing with jealousy and almost choked with rage. On recovering from her swoon, she had tortured her imagination to discover her concealed rival. No one appeared to deserve her suspicions more than Agnes. She immediately hastened to find her niece, tax her with encouraging my addresses, and assure herself whether her conjectures were well grounded. Unfortunately, she had already seen enough to need no other confirmation. She arrived at the door of the room at the precise moment when Agnes gave me her portrait. She heard me profess an everlasting attachment to her rival, and saw me kneeling at her feet. She advanced to separate us. We were too much occupied by each other to perceive her approach, and were not aware of it till Agnes beheld her standing by my side. Rage on the part of Doña Rodolfa, embarrassment on mine, for some time kept us both silent. The lady recovered herself first. My suspicions then were just, said she. The coquetry of my niece has triumphed, and tis to her that I am sacrificed. In one respect, however, I am fortunate. I shall not be the only one who laments a disappointed passion. You too shall know what it is to love without hope. I daily expect orders for restoring Agnes to her parents. Immediately upon her arrival in Spain she will take the veil and place an insuperable barrier to your union. You may spare your supplications. She continued, perceiving me on the point of speaking. My resolution is fixed and immovable. Your mistress shall remain a close prisoner in her chamber till she exchanges this castle for the cloister. Solitude will perhaps recall her to a sense of her duty, but to prevent your opposing that wished event, I must inform you, Don Alfonso, that your presence here is no longer agreeable either to the baron or myself. It was not to talk nonsense to my niece that your relations sent you to Germany. 
your business was to travel, and I should be sorry to impede any longer so excellent a design. Farewell, senor. Remember that tomorrow morning we meet for the last time. Having said this, she darted upon me a look of pride, contempt, and malice, and quitted the apartment. I also retired to mine, and consumed the night in planning the means of rescuing Agnes from the power of her tyrannical aunt. After the positive declaration of its mistress, it was impossible for me to make a longer stay at the castle of Lindenburg. Accordingly, I, the next day, announced my immediate departure. The baron declared that it gave him sincere pain, and he expressed himself in my favor so warmly that I endeavored to win him over to my interest. Scarcely had I mentioned the name of Agnes, when he stopped me short and said that it was totally out of his power to interfere in the business. I saw that it was in vain to argue. The baroness governed her husband with despotic sway, and I easily perceived that she had prejudiced him against the match. Agnes did not appear. I entreated permission to take leave of her, but my prayer was rejected. I was obliged to depart without seeing her. At quitting him, the baron shook my hand affectionately, and assured me that as soon as his niece was gone I might consider his house as my own. "'Farewell, Don Alfonso,' said the baroness, and stretched out her hand to me. I took it and offered to carry it to my lips. She prevented me. Her husband was at the other end of the room and out of hearing. "'Take care of yourself,' she continued. "'My love is become hatred, and my wounded pride shall not be unatoned. "'Go where you will. My vengeance shall follow you.' She accompanied these words with a look sufficient to make me tremble. I answered not, but hastened to quit the castle. As my chaise drove out of the court, I looked up to the windows of your sister's chamber. Nobody was to be seen there.' I threw myself back despondent in my carriage. I was attended by no other servants than a Frenchman, whom I had hired at Strasbourg in Stefano's room, and my little page whom I before mentioned to you. The fidelity, intelligence, and good temper of Theodore had already made him dear to me, but he now prepared to lay an obligation on me which made me look upon him as a guardian genius. Scarcely had we proceeded half a mile from the castle, when he rode up to the chaise door. "'Take courage, senor,' said he in Spanish, which he had already learned to speak with fluency and correctness. "'While you were with the baron, I watched the moment when Dame Cunegonda was below stairs, and mounted into the chamber over that of Doña Agnes. I sang as loud as I could a little German air well known to her, hoping that she would recollect my voice. I was not disappointed, for I soon heard her window open.' I hastened to let down a string with which I had provided myself. Upon hearing the casement closed again, I drew up the string, and, fastened to it, I found this scrap of paper. He then presented me with a small note addressed to me. I opened it with impatience. It contained the following words written in pencil. Conceal yourself for the next fortnight in some neighboring village. My aunt will believe you to have quitted Lindenburg, and I shall be restored to liberty. I will be in the West Pavilion at twelve on the night of the thirtieth. Fail not to be there, and we shall have an opportunity of concerting our future plans. Adieu, Agnes. 
At perusing these lines, my transports exceeded all bounds. Neither did I set any to the expressions of gratitude which I heaped upon Theodore. In fact, his address and attention merited my warmest praise. You will readily believe that I had not entrusted him with my passion for Agnes, but the arch-youth had too much discernment not to discover my secret, and too much discretion not to conceal his knowledge of it. He observed in silence what was going on, nor strove to make himself an agent in the business till my interests required his interference. I equally admired his judgment, his penetration, his address, and his fidelity. This was not the first occasion in which I had found him of infinite use, and I was every day more convinced of his quickness and capacity. During my short stay at Strasbourg, he had applied himself diligently to learning the rudiments of Spanish. He continued to study it, and with so much success that he spoke it with the same facility as his native language. He passed the greatest part of his time in reading. He had acquired much information for his age, and united the advantages of a lively countenance and prepossessing figure to an excellent understanding and the very best of hearts. He is now fifteen. He is still in my service, and when you see him, I am sure that he will please you. But excuse this digression. I return to the subject which I quitted. I obeyed the instructions of Agnes. I proceeded to Munich. There I left my chaise under the care of Lucas, my French servant, and then returned on horseback to a small village about four miles distant from the castle of Lindenburg. Upon arriving there, a story was related to the host at whose inn I alighted, which prevented his wandering at my making so long a stay in his house. The old man, fortunately, was credulous and incurious. He believed all I said, and sought to know no more than what I thought proper to tell him. Nobody was with me but Theodore. Both were disguised, and, as we kept ourselves close, we were not suspected to be other than what we seemed. In this manner the fortnight passed away. During that time I had the pleasing conviction that Agnes was once more at liberty. She passed through the village with Dame Cunegonda. She seemed in good health and spirits, and talked to her companion without any appearance of constraint. "'Who are those ladies?' said I to my host as the carriage passed. "'Baron Lindenberg's niece, with her governess,' he replied. "'She goes regularly every Friday to the convent of St. Catherine, in which she was brought up, and which is situated about a mile from hence.' You may be certain that I waited with impatience for the ensuing Friday. I again beheld my lovely mistress. She cast her eyes upon me as she passed the end door. A blush which overspread her cheek told me that in spite of my disguise I had been recognized. I bowed profoundly. She returned the compliment by a slight inclination of the head as if made to one inferior, and looked another way till the carriage was out of sight. The long-expected, long-wished-for night arrived. It was calm, and the moon was at the full. As soon as the clock struck eleven, I hastened to my appointment, determined not to be too late. Theodore had provided a ladder. I ascended the garden wall without difficulty. The page followed me and drew the ladder after us. I posted myself in the west pavilion, and waited impatiently for the approach of Agnes. Every breeze that whispered, every leaf that fell, I believed to be her footstep, and hastened to meet her. Thus I was obliged to pass a full hour, every minute of which appeared to me an age. 
The castle bell at length tolled twelve, and scarcely could I believe the night to be no farther advanced. Another quarter of an hour elapsed, and I heard the light foot of my mistress approaching the pavilion with precaution. I flew to receive her, and conducted her to a seat. I threw myself at her feet, and was expressing my joy at seeing her, when she thus interrupted me. We have no time to lose, Alfonso. The moments are precious, for though no more a prisoner, Cunegonda watches my every step. An express is arrived from my father. I must depart immediately for Madrid, and tis with difficulty that I have obtained a week's delay. The superstition of my parents, supported by the representations of my cruel aunt, leaves me no hope of softening them to compassion. In this dilemma I have resolved to commit myself to your honour. God grant that you may never give me cause to repent my resolution. Flight is my only resource from the horrors of a convent, and my imprudence must be excused by the urgency of the danger. Now listen to the plan by which I hope to effect my escape. We are now at the 30th of April. On the fifth day from this, the visionary nun is expected to appear. In my last visit to the convent I provided myself with a dress proper for the character a friend whom I have left there, and to whom I made no scruple to confide my secret, readily consented to supply me with a religious habit. Provide a carriage, and be with it at a little distance from the great gate from the castle. As soon as the clock strikes one, I shall quit my chamber, dressed in the same apparel as the ghost is supposed to wear. Whoever meets me will be too much terrified to oppose my escape. I shall easily reach the door, and throw myself under your protection." Thus far, success is certain. But, oh, Alfonso, should you deceive me, should you despise my imprudence and reward it with ingratitude, the world would not hold a being more wretched than myself. I feel all the dangers to which I shall be exposed. I feel that I am giving you a right to treat me with levity, but I rely upon your love, upon your honor. The step which I am on the point of taking will incense my relations against me. Should you desert? Should you betray the trust reposed in you, I shall have no friend to punish your insult or support my cause. On yourself alone rests all my hope, and if your own heart does not plead in my behalf, I am undone forever. The tone in which she pronounced these words was so touching that, in spite of my joy at receiving her promise to follow me, I could not help being affected. I also repined in secret at not having taken the precaution to provide a carriage at the village, in which case I might have carried off Agnes that very night. Such an attempt was now impracticable. Neither carriage nor horses were to be procured nearer Munich, which was distant from Lindenburg, two good days' journey. I was therefore obliged to chime in with her plan, which in truth seemed well arranged. Her disguise would secure her from being stopped in quitting the castle, and would enable her to step into the carriage at the very gate without difficulty or losing time. Agnes reclined her head mournfully upon my shoulder, and by the light of the moon I saw tears flowing down her cheek. I strove to dissipate her melancholy, and encouraged her to look forward to the prospect of happiness. I protested in the most solemn terms that her virtue and innocence would be safe in my keeping, and that, till the church had made her my lawful wife, her honor should be held by me as sacred as a sister's. I told her that my first care should be to find you out, Lorenzo, and reconcile you to our union, and I was continuing to speak in the same strain 
when a noise without alarmed me. Suddenly the door of the pavilion was thrown open, and Cunegonda stood before us. She had heard Agnes steal out of her chamber, followed her into the garden, and perceived her entering the pavilion. Favored by the trees which shaded it, and unperceived by Theodore, who waited at a little distance, she had approached in silence and overheard our whole conversation. "'Admirable!' cried Cunegonda, in a voice shrill with passion, while Agnes uttered a loud shriek. "'By St. Barbara, young lady, you have an excellent invention. You must personate the bleeding nun? Truly! What impiety! What incredulity!' "'Mary, I have a good mind to let you pursue your plan. "'When the real ghost met you, I warrant you would be in a pretty condition. "'Don Alfonso, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for seducing a young, ignorant creature "'to leave her family and friends. "'However, for this time, at least, I shall mar your wicked designs. "'The noble lady shall be informed of the whole affair, "'and Agnes must defer playing the spectre till a better opportunity. "'Farewell, senor. "'Doña Agnes?' Let me have the honor of conducting your ghost-ship back to your apartment. She approached the sofa on which her trembling pupil was seated, took her by the hand, and prepared to lead her from the pavilion. I detained her, and strove by entreaties, soothing promises and flattery, to win her to my party, but finding all that I could say of no avail, I abandoned the vain attempt. Your obstinacy must be its own punishment, said I but one resource remains to save Agnes and myself, and I shall not hesitate to employ it. Terrified at this menace, she again endeavored to quit the pavilion, but I seized her by the wrist and detained her forcibly. At the same moment, Theodore, who had followed her into the room, closed the door and prevented her escape. I took the veil of Agnes, I threw it round the duenna's head, who uttered such piercing shrieks that, in spite of our distance from the castle, I dreaded their being heard. At length I succeeded in gagging her so completely that she could not produce a single sound. Theodore and myself, with some difficulty, next contrived to bind her hands and feet with our handkerchiefs, and I advised Agnes to regain her chamber with all diligence. I promised that no harm should happen to Cunegonda bade her remember that on the 5th of May I should be in waiting at the great gate of the castle, and took of her an affectionate farewell. Trembling and uneasy, she had scarce power enough to signify her consent to my plans, and fled back to her apartment in disorder and confusion. In the meanwhile, Theodore assisted me in carrying off my antiquated prize. She was hoisted over the wall, placed before me upon my horse like a portmanteau, and I galloped away with her from the castle of Lindenburg. The unlucky duenna never had made a more disagreeable journey in her life. She was jolted and shaken till she was become little more than an animated mummy, not to mention her fright when we waded through a small river, through which it was necessary to pass in order to regain the village. Before we reached the inn, I had already determined how to dispose of the troublesome Cunegonda. We entered the street in which the inn stood, and, while the page knocked, I waited at a little distance. The landlord opened the door with a lamp in his hand. "'Give me the light,' said Theodore. "'My master is coming.' He snatched the lamp hastily and purposely let it fall upon the ground. The landlord returned to the kitchen to relight the lamp, leaving the door open. 
I profited by the obscurity, sprang from my horse with Cunegonda in my arms, darted upstairs, reached my chamber unperceived, and, unlocking the door of a spacious closet, stowed her within it, and then turned the key. The landlord and Theodore soon after appeared with lights. The former expressed himself surprised at my returning so late, but asked no impertinent questions. He soon quitted the room, and left me to exult in the success of my undertaking. I immediately paid a visit to my prisoner. I strove to persuade her submitting with patience to her temporary confinement. My attempt was unsuccessful. Unable to speak or move, she expressed her fury by her looks, and except at meals, I never dared to unbind her or release her from the gag. At such times I stood over her with a drawn sword and protested that if she uttered a single cry, I would plunge it in her bosom. As soon as she had done eating, the gag was replaced. I was conscious that this proceeding was cruel, and could only be justified by the urgency of circumstances. As to Theodore, he had no scruples upon the subject. Cunegonda's captivity entertained him beyond measure. During his abode in the castle a continual warfare had been carried on between him and the duenna, and now that he found his enemy so absolutely in his power, he triumphed without mercy. He seemed to think of nothing but how to find out new means of plaguing her. Sometimes he affected to pity her misfortune, then laughed at, abused, and mimicked her. He played her a thousand tricks, each more provoking than the other, and amused himself by telling her that her elopement must have occasioned much surprise at the barons. This was, in fact, the case. No one except Agnes could imagine what was become of Dame Cunegonda. Every hole and corner was searched for her, the ponds were dragged, and the woods underwent a thorough examination. Still, no Dame Cunegonda made her appearance. Agnes kept the secret, and I kept the duenna. The baroness, therefore, remained in total ignorance respecting the old woman's fate, but suspected her to have perished by suicide. Thus passed away five days, during which I had prepared everything necessary for my enterprise. On quitting Agnes I had made it my first business to dispatch a peasant with a letter to Lucas at Munich, ordering him to take care that a coach and four should arrive about ten o'clock on the 5th of May at the village of Rosenwald. He obeyed my instructions punctually. The equipage arrived at the time appointed. As the period of her lady's elopement drew nearer, Cunegonda's rage increased. I verily believe that spite and passion would have killed her, had I not luckily discovered her prepossession in favor of cherry brandy. With this favorite liquor she was plentifully supplied, and Theodore always remaining to guard her, the gag was occasionally removed. The liquor seemed to have a wonderful effect in softening the acrimony of her nature, and her confinement not admitting of any other amusement, she got drunk regularly once a day just by way of passing the time. The 5th of May arrived a period by me never to be forgotten. Before the clock struck twelve I betook myself to the scene of action. Theodore followed me on horseback. I concealed the carriage in a spacious cavern of the hill on whose brow the castle was situated. This cavern was of considerable depth and among the peasants was known by the name of Lindenburg Hole. The night was calm and beautiful. The moonbeams fell upon the ancient towers of the castle and shed upon their summits a silver light. 
all was still around me nothing was to be heard except the night breeze sighing among the leaves the distant barking of village dogs or the owl who had established herself in a nook of the deserted eastern turret i heard her melancholy shriek and looked upwards she sat upon the ridge of a window which i recognized to be that of the haunted room this brought to my remembrance the story of the bleeding nun and i sighed while i reflected on the influence of superstition and weakness of human reason suddenly i heard a faint chorus steal upon the silence of the night what can occasion that noise theodore a stranger of distinction replied he passed through the village to-day in his way to the castle he is reported to be the father of doña agnes doubtless the baron has given an entertainment to celebrate his arrival the castle bell announced the hour of midnight this was the usual signal for the family to retire to bed soon after i perceived lights in the castle moving backwards and forwards in distant directions i conjectured the company to be separated i could hear the heavy doors grate as they opened with difficulty and as they closed again the rotten casements rattled in their frames the chamber of agnes was on the other side of the castle i trembled lest she should have failed in obtaining the key of the haunted room through this it was necessary for her to pass in order to reach the narrow staircase by which the ghost was supposed to descend into the great hall agitated by this apprehension i kept my eyes constantly fixed upon the window where i hoped to perceive the friendly glare of a lamp borne by agnes i now heard the massy gates unbarred by the candle in his hand i distinguished old conrad the porter he set the portal doors wide open and retired the lights in the castle gradually disappeared and at length the whole building was wrapped in darkness while i sat upon a broken ridge of the hill the stillness of the scene inspired me with melancholy ideas not altogether unpleasing. The castle, which stood full in my sight, formed an object equally awful and picturesque. Its ponderous walls, tinged by the moon with solemn brightness, its old and partly ruined towers lifting themselves into the clouds and seeming to frown on the plains around them, its lofty battlements overgrown with ivy and folding gates, expanding in honor of the visionary inhabitant made me sensible of a sad and reverential horror yet did not these sensations occupy me so fully as to prevent me from witnessing with impatience the slow progress of time i approached the castle and ventured to walk round it a few rays of light still glimmered in the chamber of agnes i observed them with joy I was still gazing upon them when I perceived a figure draw near the window, and the curtain was carefully closed to conceal the lamp which burned there. Convinced by this observation that Agnes had not abandoned our plan, I returned with a light heart to my former station. The half-hour struck. The three-quarters struck. My bosom beat high with hope and expectation. At length the wished-for sound was heard. The bell tolled one, and the mansion echoed with the noise loud and solemn. I looked up to the casement of the haunted chamber. Scarcely had five minutes elapsed, when the expected light appeared. I was now close to the tower. The window was not so far from the ground, but that I fancied I perceived a female figure with a lamp in her hand moving slowly along the apartment. The light soon faded away, and all was again dark and gloomy. 
occasional gleams of brightness darted from the staircase windows as the lovely ghost passed by them i traced the light through the hall it reached the portal and at length i beheld agnes pass through the folding gates she was habited exactly as she had described the spectre a chaplet of beads hung upon her arm her head was enveloped in a long white veil her nun's dress was stained with blood and she had taken care to provide herself with a lamp and dagger. She advanced towards the spot where I stood. I flew to meet her, and clasped her in my arms. Agnes, said I, while I pressed her to my bosom. Agnes, Agnes, thou art mine. Agnes, Agnes, I am thine. In my veins, while blood shall roll, thou art mine. I am thine. Thine my body, thine my soul. Terrified and breathless, she was unable to speak. She dropped her lamp and dagger, and sank upon my bosom in silence. I raised her in my arms and conveyed her to the carriage. Theodore remained behind in order to release Dame Cunegonda. I also charged him with a letter to the baroness, explaining the whole affair, and entreating her good offices in reconciling Don Gaston to my union with his daughter. I discovered to her my real name. I proved to her that my birth and expectations justified my pretending to her niece, and assured her, though it was out of my power to return her love, that I would strive unceasingly to obtain her esteem and friendship. I stepped into the carriage where Agnes was already seated. Theodore closed the door, and the postillions drove away. At first I was delighted with the rapidity of our progress, but as soon as we were in no danger of pursuit, I called to the drivers and bade them moderate their pace. They strove in vain to obey me. The horses refused to answer the rein and continued to rush on with astonishing swiftness. The postillions redoubled their efforts to stop them, but by kicking and plunging, the beasts soon released themselves from this restraint. Uttering a loud shriek, the drivers were hurled upon the ground. Immediately thick clouds obscured the sky, the winds howled around us, the lightning flashed, and the thunder roared tremendously. Never did I behold so frightful a tempest. Terrified by the jar of contending elements, the horses seemed every moment to increase their speed. Nothing could interrupt their career. They dragged the carriage through hedges and ditches, dashed down the most dangerous precipices, and seemed to vie in swiftness with the rapidity of the winds. All this while my companion lay motionless in my arms. Truly alarmed by the magnitude of the danger, I was in vain attempting to recall her to her senses when a loud crash announced that a stop was put to our progress in the most disagreeable manner. The carriage was shattered to pieces. In falling, I struck my temple against a flint. The pain of the wound, the violence of the shock, and apprehension for the safety of Agnes combined to overpower me so completely that my senses forsook me, and I lay without animation on the ground. End of chapter 4, part 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista